Well, welcome again. We appreciate you being here at Grace. And we're in a, a series called Ideal Family, and we're recognizing that, uh, that there's quite a gap usually between the ideal and the real that we experience in life. As part of uh, my study for the series, actually this last week I, I came across a verse. I'd read it before, but I'd never really read it in that kind of a context. And I realized that it was the solution to all marital unhappiness. One verse. I mean, it just, boom, it just hit me. Are you ready for it? All right, here it is. If you get this. There it is. I mean, pretty much that, that takes care of everything. Uh, there, there's a whole context to that in First uh, Corinthians chapter seven, and and so that didn't work for everyone. As a matter of fact, a lot of that context has to do with a, a person's sex drive, and 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 we understand, you know, well, why do people get married? Well, that's part of it, and then uh, also that there's just there's tons of benefits to marriage. God designed marriage, God invented marriage. He did it for a reason, and uh, and we're. We're excited about that and learning more about it, and we, we benefit from it. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there's been a bunch of studies about marriage. Um, for example, married men, uh, contrary to popular belief, married people in general have better sex lives than single people. And I only say that because we're constantly being bombarded with the opposite, right? Right? In, uh, in media, I mean, there's the old joke, you know, guy asks, hey, how's your sex life? And, the, and, the, and then the guy answers, you know, I'm married, terrible. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Well, that actually statistically is not true at all. Married, married people have better sex life than, than non-married people. Married people live longer, especially men. Did you, you realize there's statistics showing that married men live longer than single men? Did you know that? Yeah, that's, that's just one. There's mental health. Just, just on the physical, living longer. You know, I heard a guy explaining it this way. He said, basically, a, a single man compared to a married man for life expectancy, it's the equivalent, being single is the equivalent of smoking two and a half packs of cigarettes a day. So, you know, of course... It, if you're single and you smoke two and a half packs a day, well, you know, that's a lot worse. But the point is, there's mental health advantages. There's uh, economic advantages. As a matter of fact, I was just reading about a study. Uh, this is Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. And he's talking about the surprising economic benefits of marriage. And, and they're talking about how married men, for example, they've done studies, earn 10 to 40% more than single men. You know, and why is that? And, and here's the way he says it. So why should this be? Some of this is because married people experience greater physical and mental health. Also, marriage provides a profound shock absorber that helps you navigate disappointments, illnesses, and other difficulties. You recover your equilibrium faster. But the increased earnings probably also come from what scholars call the marital social norms. Studies show that spouses hold one another to greater levels of personal responsibility and self-discipline than friends or other family members can. 
Just to give one example, single people can spend money unwisely and self-indulgently without anyone to hold them accountable. But married people make each other practice saving, investment, and delayed gratification. Nothing can mature character like marriage. So there's all these studies saying, hey, we're better off, we're better people, married, married. And, And there's other issues too. I know a lot of people that go through difficult times. We've had this thing kind of floating in our society where, where when people were faced with divorce, there was a saying that they always said, well, our kids will be better off in a happy divorced family than a family with all this conflict. And so there was a whole bunch of studies to prove that to be true. And you know what happened? None of those studies proved that to be true. Every single study proved that to be false. You still hear it sometimes. But you should never hear that from anybody that knows anything about marriages because in every way you can, merit, you can measure a child's well-being, they are better off in a two-parent married couple home. In every single way you can measure their well-being, they are better off. That's what statistics show. Well, but then people will say, well, wow. You know, it's just, we're in conflict. It's just difficult. I'm in an unhappy marriage. What do I do? Do you know that long longitudinal studies have shown that two-thirds of marriages where the people both describe themselves as being unhappy, two-thirds of them are happy if they would just stay in the marriage within five years, they would self-identify themselves as being happy. If they would just stick it out within five years, two-thirds of them say, I'm in a happy relationship now. Same relationship. That's what we're talking about. We must learn how to deal with conflicts in marriage. And there's, there's all these reasons. We're, we're so different. We're like two strangers, you know, married together. We... we And then when we finally get to know somebody, then we change as we marry. And so we're constantly getting to know the new you. And it starts right off. Some of it's communication. Like you you could just imagine, say two buddies were going to take a road trip. And so they're going to drive somewhere. They jump on the interstate. As they're driving along, one guy's like starving. So what's he do? He says, hey, I'm hungry. They pull off. He gets food. They get back on the interstate, keep going. Now, same guy, that's with his buddies. Same guy now, six months later, he's gotten married. And he's traveling along the interstate with his new bride. And his new bride is starving. But he doesn't know that. And so they're driving along. And then the bride sees this sign Food, next exit. She's starving. So, so a lot of times, here's what she does. She says, so, are you hungry? <laughs> you know, and, and he says, no, thanks. And he just, he, he blasts down the interstate. Well, they pass the exit. So now she's not happy. So she gives him the silent treatment. Which doesn't usually work that well because an hour later, the guy doesn't even know she's giving, her, she's giving him the silent treatment. You know, he's driving along and he's thinking, wow, isn't marriage great? I mean, we're now so close 
that when we're just driving along, we don't have to fill every moment with a bunch of mindless chatter. What are, it's great to be married. That's what he's thinking. And so an hour later, when she's realizing the silent treatment has not worked at all, then she goes to her second strategic initiative, and that is the strategic sigh. All right, so an hour later, then pretty soon you start hearing this. And so that seems a little out of place, but about the fifth time she places the strategic sigh during the silent treatment, so it's hard to say anything, you know, about the fifth time the guy starts catching on, right? Oh, something must be bothering her. He has no clue. As the, this is an hour and a half later. He has no clue that she's still starving. He doesn't want her to starve. He wants her to be happy and well-fed, but he doesn't know. This is what happens in marriages. And so then as the guy starts learning, so, you know, five years later in their marriage, and you're driving along, and your wife says, are you hungry? Then you realize, this is just a cue for me to say, no, are you hungry? So that's all that is. It's a cue. So we learn that finally. No. Are you hungry? Then you have a 15-minute conversation. Well, if you're not hungry, I don't know that I'm hungry. You know. And so 10 years later, the guy's even smarter. And she says, so, you know, are you hungry? Now he knows. So then he says, I don't know. Are you hungry? He's got to play it out. He doesn't know which way to go on this. Community, you know, it's, we ha- just any little thing can cause conflict and it just doesn't take much, right? Nobody's trying to get anybody there. It's just conflict. It crops up. You know, that's, we've got to, we've got to get it. We've got to nail this. There's a gap, a tension, a gap that creates a tension between the ideal and the real. But, but I want to point out something. The ideal is true. The ideal represents truth. We can toss the ideal, but we're tossing about what... The ideal is what's truly best for our marriage, says the one who invented marriage, our creator. So how do we, how do we strive toward the ideal when we're experiencing the real? Well, one of those things is we've got to learn how to deal with conflict. But there's a solution. Actually, there's a solution in James that we're going to look at in just a moment. It's in James chapter 4. I'm going to give you a little context. James is a half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing this in the first century. He knew Jesus, and he's writing this. But the first three chapters of James, you have to know a, a pretty important principle, is that James, it's kind of like wisdom literature. It's a small book. He's just telling you kind of a bunch of truth, truisms. And he's hammering how we use our mouth. He does that a couple of different times. He uses illustrations. He tells stories. He's saying, watch your mouth. We're not talking about that today necessarily, but we're getting on to to chapter 4. But in the first three chapters, he's hammered. Watch your mouth. Watch what you say. Be careful how you speak. Watch it. Watch it. it." And we go over that, for example, in our pre-marriage class. I already mentioned that. You know, and we apply... James' warning here, you know, just some practical things 
uh, that we need to know to, to be able to watch what we're saying. For example, don't use out-of-bounds words. Like in a marriage and you get in conflict and things start getting heated, there's some words that should always be out-of-bounds. I hate you. You know, that's what, that's what a 13-year-old says when they don't get the, We don't do that in marriage. I hate you. That's out of bounds. Divorce. That you're in an argument, so you power up by saying, well, maybe we should just get a divorce. A lot of times people are saying that because that's going to make the other person back down. But you do that about 10 times. About the 10th time, the person said, okay. You know, it's just the way that goes. Or, or maybe we should have, ne- oh, if I would have known this about you, maybe we should have never gotten married in the first place. Yeah. So out of bounds words, you know, that's just watch your mouth. Don't you, you know, don't do that. Don't always be accusing you, 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 you. You can say the same thing by rephrasing that. You know, it seems to me, I feel that, you know, it makes me think when you do that makes me think this, you know, you just shift all that around. You can talk about the same thing. Stick with the present tense. Don't keep going back to the past, the past. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. And we need to stop and assess the damage of what we're saying verbally. Because we come from different, different backgrounds. Some of us come from families where when people got mad, they said anything and everything. And then a lot of times we've learned to just take that like water off a duck's back. Ah, oh, yeah, they were mad. They didn't mean it. But then more than half of people come from families where they did not do that. And they don't get that principle. And, and it sticks with them. What you say as a spouse will stick with them more than anything that anybody else could ever say. Sometimes I'll use the illustration like, you know, the little, we just got blanketed in snow, if you can believe it, but, you know, the little dandelion puffs that are going to come up probably in a few weeks. You ever take one of those and, it's like James is saying, be careful what comes out of your mouth. That's just breath. Because you can't undo what you do with your mouth. As easy it is to go, now, if you decided you shouldn't have done that, can you imagine trying to go find all those and reattach? Not going to happen, right? It's not going to look the same. It's never going to be as beautiful as it was, right? That's what words do. We, we, have, we have to get that. And, and I'll just throw in another one. Don't psychoanalyze your spouse unless you actually have a PhD in psychology and your spouse is asking you to psychoanalyze. <laughs> you know, just don't do it. You know, so... So we talk about stuff like that, but that's all, you know, watch our mouths as good principles for marriage. Talk about them all the time. That's all what James has been talking about, bringing us up to dealing with conflict, James chapter four. And by the way, when you argue with your spouse, nobody wins. Think about it. When you've won an argument with your spouse, do you feel like a winner? I mean, I mean, is everything good then? It's like even when you win, you don't win. We got to get that. You know, we must deal with conflict because we all miss the ideal. And we all miss the ideal because we're, we're all bent toward our own selfishness. We're just pre-wired, pre-programmed that way to be selfish. I mean, that, that's just... That we can learn to be unselfish. We don't have to learn to be selfish. It just, it just comes. And it's vital to know how to deal with conflict, especially in our closest relationships. And here's what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn when it comes to conflict, 
there's really just one main cause. And then there are two solutions. One cause, two solutions. So, starting off, what, what's the cause, the one cause? Well, James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? By the way, he's writing to churches, and this is kind of a gutsy question to ask. Could you imagine if I was asking you that question? What? What's the cause of your fights in marriage? And then ask you to, I'm not asking this, but then ask you to, then I ask you to verbally tell me, all of you just start shouting out, What's the cause of your fights in marriage? And keep on going, all, list all the causes, because we think there's like a hundred causes. List them all. The time you started shouting and listening to those causes, if you were sitting next to somebody in your family, that alone would create conflict, right? Because you'd be saying, well, uh, my son, you know, my husband, my, my wife doesn't do that, my this, that. And, you'd be, and it'd be, we'd be kind of blaming people. We'd be throwing all this stuff out. This is, here's what he's, he's saying, hey, as long as when we answer that question, what's, what's causing the fight? As long as we're blaming somebody else, there's a dynamic that you, that's so basic that you just have to get this cause. When, we're blame, when our first thought, I'm not happy or I'm in conflict, and, and it's because of this other person, what we're doing... Is, is we're blaming somebody, but what that does is we're saying, I can't, I, I'm giving the control of my happiness to this other person to hold. And I can't be happy unless they do what I want them to do. Which is, if you think about it, logically, kind of stupid, right? I'm going to give the control of my happiness to somebody else. And then, so when I'm not happy, it's their fault because they're not doing. Who wants to give control of your inner happiness, your joy, your peace to somebody else? That makes no sense, right? That's what you're doing. You're saying, I can't be happy because that person isn't acting the way I want them to act. Why, why would we do that? And, and so he asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, and everybody has a different answer. Everybody has a bunch of answers. And James says, no, wrong. He says this, verse one. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He's saying, hey, don't they come from inside of you? What's the source? It comes from what you want inside of you. You want something. It's that selfishness. You want something and you're not getting it and that's the source. And it's our desires, what we want, those desires are spilling out on the people around us. So we want, we want, we want, we have these desires, but we're not getting it and, it, and then we're saying, because you're not doing this, you're not, and, and our desires are just spilling out, and we're saying, well, you're messing me up. You're not giving me what I need. And then the next phrase is kind of interesting. He says, 
Next verse. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And this is one of those times where you're reading the Bible and you're like, wow, James tracking with you. Murder? You know, rare, you know rarely do you see the show where, where she actually murdered the guy, you know. But it, it happens once in a while, but that's, that's kind of not me. But what James is doing here is he's doing the same thing that Jesus did. Remember when we were talking about the ideal and the real? We're saying God had this standard. And then we were talking about how Jesus comes along and actually said, hey, you know that standard God has? It's actually a little higher than you think. A lot higher than you think. And so he did that. Well, when James says this, it reminds us of Jesus, that first sermon, Sermon on the Mount, when he did this very thing. It's in Matthew chapter 5 and beginning in verse 21. He says this. He's in his sermon, his first major public sermon. And part of that sermon, Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. That's the sixth commandment. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty. What he's, Jesus is saying, hey, you think the standard's murder and a bunch of you feel pretty good about that. You haven't committed murder. But I'm telling you, when God says that, what he really means, if you ever have anger, hate in your heart, you're really violating this command. Because you want to get rid of the person. You're so mad, you want to get rid of the person. You probably don't have the guts to off them, but you, you want to get rid of them. You just don't have the guts to kill them. And so that's what he's saying. That's what James is referring to. He's kind of tying that in. And James continues. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If, if we understood this and we internalized it, it would change all of our arguments. If we just got this principle that part of the reason that, that we're having this conflict is that I'm not getting what I want. That makes sense? That's what we're doing. We're saying, I'm not getting what I need. I'm not getting what I want. And so some of this is on us. Now, we defend that because we say, no, that's not it. I just want what's best for you. I just want what's best for my spouse. I just want what's best for my children. I just want, you know, I want my wife to realize her full potential. Hey, I want my husband to be successful in every area of his life. So that, that's what's going on. But really, that's, that's covering up the truth of the matter that, No, you want this so that you'll feel more fulfilled or prouder or happier or better about your life situation. It comes right back to us. So we kind of lie to ourselves about that. A lot of times we'll say, you know, why do we hurt the people who are closest to us? Well, one answer to that is because they're the closest to us. Because as stuff spill out, what we want, we get demanding about the people that are around us when we don't see life going exactly the way we kind of envisioned that it would go. So we have this tendency in conflict when things aren't good and when we're not happy to say, well, it's because of them, 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 them. And James is saying, no, it's because of you, 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 you. So what's the solutions? Two solutions. The first one is this. That we take responsibility 
for what we just talked about. That we, we own this. We take responsibility. We own the fact that part of the problem is that we're not getting what we want from the people that are around us. Or in marriage specifically, part of the problem is we're not getting what we want from our spouse. If you get this, it changes every argument. If, if before you were going in to have that confrontation, if you would just stop and think, part of the problem here, I, I have to admit, is I'm not getting what I want. It will change the tone of your argument. You know? And I know when I'm saying that, there's, there's probably you know, some ladies in here, I wish my husband was here to hear that. He needed that. That's what I'm talking about. You know, we're thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. That's, oh, yeah, they needed that one. We have to own that. A lot of times in, in marriage counseling, and I, I don't do as much marriage counseling as I used to do, but uh, as, as we do that, you know, one thing, because you hear, you know, both sides of the story and everything, and you can just cut through all that and, and just ask this question. What percentage of the responsibility is yours? especially if you're meeting with them separately, you can't do anything till you get to this. Well, what percentage of responsibility? It's great when you're a pastor asking this question. There's a little more pressure on the people because I think other people ask this and they're like, none. But, but your pastor's asking you, so you're like, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Ah, yeah, there's, I'll take a sliver. You know, it's 5%. You got to start there with what you can change in yourself. This one principle can change everything. It, it'll help you, James is saying, even to pray. If you have this one principle that he's telling us, it'll help us to pray because we'll pray with better motives. He continues in verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He's saying, you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and don't have because you're just wanting what you want, not necessarily what's best. And so we all know that it's easy for us to end up praying for people. God, make this person do this. God, get this person to, to line up with what I think is because it's the right thing. If, if we would just take responsibility, if we would own that we want what we want, and then we would pray. You know, our, our prayers would be different. We prayed before that conflict, before we walked in to have that discussion. God, I, I know, you know, we're going in, we're going to have this discussion. Things, it's a difficult problem. And I know part of it is I want stuff. I want what I want. And that's part of this that's happening. Uh, we need to just get there. Now, as I say all that, I'm please, please when I say you got to own take responsibility please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that someone else that your spouse cannot wrong you in such a way you know that they've just major crossed the line and just wronged you and it had nothing really to do with what you did so much it just boom happened. Or or even if you were a contributing factor that that's still no excuse across a major line. 
I'm not implying that somebody can't wrong you big time. And in those cases, for everything that the first one doesn't cover, the first solution, the second solution does. So if you're sitting here and you're not tracking with solution number one, take responsibility. You want what you want, and that's part of the conflict. Anything left, solution number two, guaranteed. Ready? It's just one word. Forgive. Forgive. You cannot have a thriving, growing marriage without forgiveness. And I think even when I throw that out there in a a crowd like this, I think a lot of people are saying, yeah, well, yeah, I've forgiven, I've forgiven. But, But here's how you know. Let's do a heart check. First question, are you resentful to your wife for any area of life? Do you have resentment against your husband in any area of your life? If you're experiencing resentment, bitterness, continuing frustration, you cannot have those types of emotions if you've truly forgiven someone. Do you know that? So if, if, hey, yeah, I love my wife and we have a pretty good marriage, but there's this one area and, you know, I've kind of just shut down in this area because it's not right. And so even though our marriage is kind of okay, there's this area, you know, finances or this area, sexuality or, you know, whatever. It is, there's this one area that I kind of hold a resentment toward my spouse. You need to forgive and you haven't done it yet. That's what I'm saying. Now, here, here's the thing about forgiveness. Uh, you know, here... here we're in a room like this. We know that they're basically, God says there are two classifications of people here. Christians, non-Christians, followers of Christ and people who aren't followers of Christ. Everything we've been talking about up to this point equally applies followers, non-followers. But here, I just got to throw out kind of a disclaimer. If you are not a follower of Christ, this will be harder for you than it will be for a follower of Christ. And, and, and I'll explain why. You, you have a, just a bigger battle to fight to be able to truly forgive where truth and grace match. Because forgiveness is not minimizing. Forgiveness is absorbing the debt. Talked about it a couple weeks ago. I use the illustration, hey, say I bought a brand new truck, came to church, and somebody hit it. And after the service, they were there waiting for me. And I came out and they say, hey, I hit your truck, and I don't have any money, and I don't have any insurance. Your brand new truck. I'm like, oh. And I say, well, I forgive you. That, that I forgive you comes with a cost, right? Then that means I go take it down and get it fixed, and I pay for that. And I don't hold it against the other person. Or I I live with the dent and someday sell the truck and it's worth less. There's a cost, either way you slice it, of absorbing the debt. Forgiveness always costs. So I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's hard. Maybe harder than we think. It always costs. There's always a price to pay. It's never free. It's never easy. If you ever forgive somebody and there's no cost to it, you didn't need to forgive them. They didn't owe you anything. If you're not canceling some sort of debt, that's not forgiveness. And and you hear that all the time. People say, well, there's nothing for me to forgive you. Hey, will you forgive me? Oh, there's nothing to forgive. 
There's no debt here. That's what they're saying. Because if you're saying, oh yeah, I forgive you, no big deal. That's probably, there's no debt. Because forgiveness isn't no big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. Because somebody has to pay the cost. And it's the And it's totally unfair. Forgiveness is totally unfair. Because the person who didn't do anything wrong is paying the price for somebody who did do something wrong. Does that make sense? That's forgiveness. Now, the reason that followers of Christ have an advantage when it comes to forgiving other people is simple. It's because of what we call the gospel, the good news. It's this fact that all of us who are believers, we've been forgiven of everything. And we deserved none of that forgiveness. It's completely unmerited. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to make it right. God looks at us like he looks at every human being, realizing that we've fallen short of God's righteous standard, his ideal, what he says is truly correct. We've all fallen short in different areas of our life, all our life long, and God says, I forgive you, but it comes at a cost. Jesus comes, lives the ideal, perfect, righteous life, and then he dies for our sin. Not like Superman, like he's hanging on the cross and he doesn't feel anything. He, he's God, wraps himself in man, and he feels the torture to death, and he does that for us out of love. He pays the price for our forgiveness. He absorbs the debt that our wrong actions have caused so that we don't have to. Now, when we've done, when we've, and we, and why do we get that? Do we deserve it? No, we don't deserve it any more than anybody else, including all non-Christians. We don't deserve it more than a non-Christian. It's just given to us. We, we just, we just received it. Now think about that. So God is perfectly righteous. He creates us and he creates us with a free will so we can love. Because that's important to God that we love. But because we have the free will to love, we also have the free will to not love. And so we don't love and we reject God and we turn against him and rebel against him. And we don't live up to his standard because we don't like doing that. We like doing our own thing. And so we basically tell God, no thanks, don't need you. We rebel against our creator. We've all done this. But then we realize it. And we realize we can't fix it. Even if we could start living righteously, it still wouldn't cancel out all the sins we've already done, which we can't even do this. And so we just fall on his mercy. We just ask. And he says, if we ask, he'll forgive us. But when we ask sincerely, we do that recognizing his authority. We're overwhelmed by his love and it causes in us a desire to follow God. If we do all this and it doesn't cause any desire like that, then we're probably not getting it. I mean, God's for, he loves us so much. He created us. He loves us. He's forgiven us for everything. And so we want to follow God. And then God says, if, if you want to follow me, you have to forgive others. I've forgiven you of everything. Now you have to forgive. 
And we're like, well, God, I don't think you realize what this guy did to me. And God says, forgive. Because no one, nobody could do against you as much as what you've done against God. A holy and righteous God, by the way, not just another sinner like you. So God says, forgive. And so how do we, how do we forgive? Well, it's for Christians, it's with the humility of knowing that God's forgiven us. He's forgiven us. When we have that, when we realize that, it humbles us down where then we are able to talk truth with other persons. Yes, this hurt me. Yes, this caused a problem. Yes, this will be expensive to fix. But then we, because of our humility before God, without a shred of self-righteousness, we can come to the other person and we can say, yeah, this all happened, but I forgive you. And there's no self-righteousness. There's no condemnation. Why? Because we're humble before God. That's how we can do it that way. That's what God wants for all of us. We have got to learn how to forgive in order for our relationships to work. And we cannot carry around bitterness and kind of the slow burn under the surface anger and frustration. It's God's saying, can't do it. And if we're doing that a lot... God's saying, Jesus is, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, he's explaining to us, hey, if you don't forgive other people, oh, then God hasn't forgiven you. It's almost like Jesus is telling us, if you don't get this whole forgiveness deal, it's because you've not experienced forgiveness. Scary. That's how Jesus sums it up. That's, that's his comments after he teaches us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Big, big time stuff. We need to nail this down, and we need to get it right. And so we're going to wrap up our service. But as we do that, I would like us all just to bow our heads and sort of ask God, by way of his Holy Spirit, to search our hearts to see if we are living with any bitterness, anger, frustration, resentment toward anyone. First, those who are closest to our our spouse, our children, our parents, our immediate family first. And then also other people in our life because God doesn't put a limit on this. So just, just kind of pray to God on your own and just say, God, search my heart. Am I withholding forgiveness from anyone? Am I bitter, resentful to anyone? And then, I want you to think about this. If you're a believer, God says you don't have the right to withhold forgiveness. 
because I've forgiven you of everything. Jesus talks about this all the time. He even tells stories to illustrate this point. You don't have the right, if you're a believer, you don't have the right to withhold forgiveness. Because God's forgiven you of everything. And and if you're here and you haven't experienced that kind of forgiveness, costly, expensive forgiveness, I want you to know something. And and maybe you're not praying because you don't get the whole prayer thing. That's okay if you just kind of sit in silence. I just want you to know this. Right now, please know this. This is the most important thing that you'll leave church with today. God knows you. He knows everything about you. And God loves you. God values you so much that if you were the only person on the planet, I believe Jesus would have come to die for you. Even if you reject him, that's how much God loves you. So if you don't know Christ, I I would just say, quit holding God at arm's length. He loves you and he wants a relationship with you forever, but he will not violate your will to do it. He will not make you become a believer. He offers you grace and forgiveness. Take it by placing your trust in Jesus, who he is, believing who he is, son of God, trusting in what he did, died on the cross for your sins. Put your trust in Christ. Our heads are bowed, and I'd just like to lead in a prayer in case just to help somebody through this most important decision in your life. We're kind of off marriage now, but it's a key principle. If you're not sure where you stand before God, just uh, solidify that. If you're ready to trust him, maybe just by saying this to God in your own words, in your heart, silently, something like this. God, Father in heaven, thank you for loving me, even though I don't deserve it any more than anyone else. And God, not just loving me with words, but with action, allowing your son to come and die on the cross for my sins. And God, right now, I, I'm putting my faith in you. I'm, I believe Jesus was who he said he was, and I trust in the fact or that he died in my sins. And God, I, I want you to come into my life and help me to follow you as best I can. In Christ's name. With our heads bowed just before we close. I'd just like to ask by way of response, maybe who might have prayed that prayer today. And there's a reason that I'm asking a couple things. Once is just to help you realize that you've made a decision. You know, God talked about us being willing to acknowledge him before people. And, uh, and just so we can pray for you. So if you made that decision today, as far as you know, for the first time that you've put your trust in Christ, I'd like you just to, with everyone's head bowed, I'm looking around, just kind of raise your hand, make eye contact with me, put your hand right back down, just we'll know to pray for you. So right now, all over the auditorium, see right back there, just 
put it up. Let's see you. Thank you, sir. Here. See you back there. So put it up. Put it right back down. Thank you. Gotcha. I'll see you. Thanks. Up and down. Father, we thank you. I see you right there. Thanks. We thank you. Father, for these who have raised their hand and some continue to raise their hand. Lord, maybe there's even some who prayed that prayer and for whatever reason just didn't raise their hand. Lord, you know all that. And God, we thank you for forgiveness. We, We don't deserve it, and yet you drench us with forgiveness. And you teach us how to love. And you teach us how to forgive. And as believers, God, help us to follow you in that. God, thanks for loving us with so much cost, with action. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. 